is the line with Mickey and Willie. Hey strangers, welcome to this strange life. Uh, just me and James here today. Uh, we just hung back from another podcast because we wanted to do a quick uh, intro to rooms. Now, if you listened to last week's show, uh, we're going to put this out next week, right? Yeah, let, let's keep it. Yeah, this was consistent. The, this was the FCCTV uh, FCCT. Yeah, uh, yeah, talk about Christopher G. Moore's. Uh, most recent book, Rooms, which is talking about the, uh, the decim- <laughs> I always decimation. Oh, no, no, domestic. Oh, domestication. Domestication of uh, the human species over 300,000 years. We used yeah. to be uh, hunter-gatherer, um, nomadic, um, small groups, um, and now we're megacities, globalization. And Chris looks at um, all the history and um, he invited me to come and chat with him mm-hmm. at the uh, Foreign Correspondence Club in Bangkok uh, last Wednesday, I think it was. Um, so here's the uh, second uh, mm. segment of that show. What is, a foreign con- what is a Foreign Correspondence Club of Thailand? What is it? Well, they have these in uh, every country around the world. And if you're a uh, media person, if you're a journalist, yeah. um, if you're a TV person... Because there's a BBC it's, office it's, on the same floor. That's right, yeah. yeah. The BBC have their offices there. So if you're um, corresponding, you know, if you're a journalist um, working in... Uh, a foreign country, you associate yourself with uh, this, this place. And who pays this, for this it? It's club. like a, all the newspapers pay a certain amount per year to be members, and it's a membership thing. It's right? a membership club, much like the film club uh, in Bangkok, you know, so you, right. you pay your, your yearly membership, and yeah. then you can come and watch events uh, like the one I participated in oh, okay. the other night. Right, so, without further ado... Um, Get we back put, into it. Yeah, we put... Should we just put the whole thing out again? Because I only put 10 or 20 no, minutes. No, let's cut in uh, to the second part oh, after right. the YouTube uh, debacle and yeah. go straight into <laughs> the so meat funny. of the talk. Right. Um, let's not mention the, uh, the sound issues and go straight to the heart of the talk, <laughs> which is just about to begin Too now. late. I've already mentioned them. All right. Uh, yeah, okay. Enjoy it. Enjoy. And uh, we'll see you next week. Cheers. Bye. Right. What I wanted to do was to demonstrate how that population shifted over a relatively short period of time. If we took the entire 300,000 year history of our species and did it at the same rate as this, and you wanted to binge watch, it would be 21 hours basically, which means five hours a day, four days, one hour on the last day, the fifth day, and on the fifth day when you watch the last six minutes, this would be just a fraction of a second because the rest of the global history would be in that last six minutes as well. The point being is how recent all of this is and how astounding it is to think how much we've changed as a species and at the same time, how much we've stayed the same. So if you go back to the planet about 6 million years ago, there were, uh, 6,000 years ago, there were an estimated 7 million people. Really, the, the room's dwelling culture that we have now you can, wasn't really established until about 1800. I mean, we had, obviously, lots of uh, populations living in in rooms, but in 1800, basically 88% of the world population was illiterate, 
and 94% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty or slavery. So the best rooms were really reserved for a very few people, and those are the ones that are now our great historical monuments by and large. One of the uh, consequences of the room-dwelling culture that we've, we've constructed is it was built on domesticated livestock and agriculture. Because before agriculture and domesticated livestock, there was no real fungible, accessible, le legible uh, assets of wealth. People were just on subsistence. But if you could know when a rice crop was going to be harvested, you could show up with your troops and collect the tax uh, immediately. And that gave uh, a huge impetus for people who were able to organize and plan and use coercion to basically enjoy uh, the wealth that was extracted from others in the area. It worked so well that worked on us. And what Rooms is, is it's a look at how living in these constructed dwellings has created a human domestication and submission system. One that we basically take for granted. One in which we have norms and values that allow us to live as non-kin in large groups of people, uh, unlike other primates, and able to cooperate unlike other primates. Uh, for example, you'll never see two chimpanzees working to carry a log back to camp or a group of chimpanzees erecting a dwelling. They don't cooperate. Most animals cooperate, if at all, at a very limited level. We have a, a system that's based on mass cooperation, and that system is a system that requires the use of rooms to house people that are needed for cooperation at whatever stage of the system uh, needs them. So what, before we enter the discussion, I want to give you a checklist to think about. And it's how room dwellers have constructed their experience in the world. In other words, how we, everyone in this room, how we see the reality, first of all, from our shelter. Your space is very important to how you perceive the world. This is not a wide open space. It has walls and ceilings and a floor. It's fixed. It's permanent. It's knowable. It's secure. It's many things that nature does not offer. It is a shelter, a protection from nature. The blinds are pulled. We can't even see a night sky. We're totally enclosed, and that's totally normal for us. Second thing are sounds. When you go home, listen to the sounds of your own place again. Listen to them for the first time. As if you just walked in and you want to know what, there's more than silence there. Listen to the sounds outside. What of those sounds are mechanical, machine-made, and what are those sounds from other human beings, or God forbid, a bird or an animal? Light, the same thing. There's been a lot of current neurological research on how we perceive light and LED light and how our brain preserves light. 
in low sodium light, our brain perceives faces as green. Other objects are in shades of gray. It's because the way you look at a face is accessing a different part of the brain than when you look at a chair or a table. This has changed as well as we have changed and controlled and managed our lighting. We see things in a different way than people would have seen them for 300,000 years, simply because they did not have artificial light. Artificial light allows you to see different things in different ways and, it, and gives you 24-hour access to seeing. Colors. Again, we've been able to create magenta. There's a color you'll never find in nature. There are many others. We have been very artistic and creative in, in coming up with colors that have no correspondence in nature. Smells. Think about the smell in this room. Hopefully it's not anything that is going to be noticeable. It just smells like pretty much any other room, doesn't it? And when you go home, your room will probably have a smell that really doesn't stand out. In other words, our sense of smell is pretty blunted. We don't need it that often. We would have needed it for hundreds of thousands of years for all variety of reasons of smelling uh, vegetables, flowers, trails of other animals that we're hunting. Uh, those are no longer necessary. It's very rare you'll go into Villa Market or Foodland and find people smelling the food before they put it in their cart. So the book is about the story of these changes, how our sensory processing has changed, how we have been rewired to hear different sounds, see different colors, to, to assess the risk and assess what the future will be. Because we are prediction machines. We want to know what happens next, whether it's a mystery or a drama. What keeps our attention is, what is the story going to do next after it's done that? And that's a survival trait as well. That's why the fear of the lion. Trying to predict whether that animal is near and whether it will eat you is hugely important for passing on your DNA. So with that, I will turn uh, this over to James who will begin the discussion of the book. Okay, thank you very much, Christopher. It's interesting that you mentioned the lion. Um, I was walking to uh, university the other day and a domestic cat jumped out in front of me onto, on, onto the sidewalk and my heart leapt. Um, there was some primal um, innate fear of this feline predator. Um, whereas other sounds that we could hear um, quite naturally, like the humming of an electric pylon that might be radiating some kind of cancer-inducing properties, we're not as scared um, for, because we're not, you know, we haven't had this drilled into us. So, um, yeah, I'm not sure how sympathetic I am with the girl's um, 
who went camping on safari and didn't make it through the first night. I remember, I remember going to Kenya when I was 14 and loving it. You know, um, I love to be outside in nature. And some people are also, also scared of rooms. You know, if you have a troubling um, childhood, um, if you have an abusive childhood, perhaps rooms scare you, you know? Um, so it's all about um, uh, what feels safe. Um, and the book is fantastic, Christopher. I must admit, we had lunch um, um, shortly before you started writing it, or maybe whilst you were researching it. And um, I was working on a, a futuristic um, science fiction book um, called Fun City Punch about um, a future, a near, near um, future where there's no currency in the world and people have this social credit system, which I didn't know about, but they're doing this in China right now. You know, uh, people were d deducted um, uh, based on their moral behavior. Um, and then I went away for a year or so and we had lunch again. You mentioned rooms and I thought, this is even better. <laughs> You're going back 300,000 years and looking at how those... Um, um, how that history is, is relating to us now. So congratulations on the book. Um, one question, first of all, um, that popped into my mind is we know um, uh, writing uh, came around about the same time as maybe just before mass agriculture. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, we, the, we don't the, actually know, do we, when if writing predated... Um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's probably the first clay... Tablets would go back to Samaria and Babylonia, where you have your first trigonometry, first geometry, uh, and your your first tallies uh, were made. So that's about six thousand year mark, and that's in other words, we haven't found much, if anything, uh, that predates that period in terms of recognizable writing. And I think there's a correlation between the development of that transition from basically a very primitive dwelling stage to more fixed constructed uh, buildings required writing because even if you had one brilliant uh, craftsman and master everything basically is lost on his death because he can't leave a written record he could leave maybe one or two disciplines but those disciples would still keep things very local. You couldn't share a plan for a room, say, with another tribe or another village. That wouldn't have been, uh, that would have been very difficult to do. So writing was a hugely important uh, aspect in what was able to fuel the, the transition between uh, those temporary shelters uh, in into more fixed and permanent ones in the first villages and cities and towns. So but one thing I, I wanted to mention about the cat jumping out with you, James, is it's another thing. Think about how controlled the motion is in every room you're in. You don't find people doing you know, weird kind of motions. You don't have animals. You're not surprised in any way that motion being controlled is something that you don't have in nature. There are things that will happen that will surprise you, but surprise will be part of the normal hum of the aircon that we take for granted. So 
we not only live in these rooms, we're pretty immobile, we have very little motion, our light and our color is controlled, and so far we're not zombies. That's an accomplishment. Well, you may think so. <laughs> um, where's our um, guy in the booth? I, I was thinking, yeah, can you play the uh, next slide? Um, talking about rooms got me to thinking about Bangkok and um, homelessness. And there's this guy I've seen a few times around the city. The last time I saw him was on uh, Soy 71, Sukhumvit, on Pridi. And he has... Um, you know, he's homeless, and he's a graffiti artist of sorts, and he draws these really bizarre but intelligent plans of the city with all these rooms connected, like kind of engineering uh, flow charts or some kind of mind maps. This guy is fascinating. Um, and he seems to feel there's some kind of conspiracy um, in the city um, that he can't quite um, um, articulate because he's, you know, he's a little bit crazy. Um, but is, um, you know, is, is an urban homeless person in this part of the world with a passion, which he clearly has, is he um, living a less desirable life than, say, a um, rich stockbroker up in a condo uh, in a room with less to worry about or more to worry about? What's the... Large existential question there. I think you start with that you know, for 290,000 years, everyone was homeless. Homeless was the normal state of our species. It's not something that's just happened recently. It's over the last 10,000 years that people have started to be able to move into a dwelling and then from moving into a dwelling to have an expectation that a dwelling is required for them to have a satisfactory life. So there are a number of steps that we had to go through in order to psychologically prepare ourselves for living in rooms, because by living in rooms, you define your confinement, as it were. And so you have to agree that, being, that you're not being confined, that actually you're free. It's a very Orwellian thing. The room makes you free because you don't have to live outside. Living outside now is uh, a negative. What before was just not just ordinary, it was everywhere. There was no exception to it, basically. Now, for people who are homeless, they are the pariah. They're thought to be a social problem, which they are, economic and political. And... I think probably that increase will go up dramatically in the next 10 years as climate change yeah. starts to have an impact. And we're going to find out that the room culture, first of all, is largely responsible for creating the climate situation we're in and can't sustain what seems to be coming in terms of extreme heat, drought, flood, uh, pandemics. I mean, one of the things I just mentioned very briefly is one of the things that kept the numbers down in terms of the size of towns and cities were uh, epidemics. Time after time, like 90% of the people end up dead because of some pathogen that's brought in by a stranger or, remember, no sanitation, mixing of sewage with drinking water. 
made for a very short, dangerous uh, existence. They were much worse off than before moving into a room culture. But moving outside of that, think for a moment, 10 years from now, our power grid doesn't allow us to have lights. It doesn't allow us to have air con. It doesn't allow you to come to the penthouse on a lift. You have to walk up the stairs. I think the audience would be thin for that kind of uh, adventure. But that's the kind of future that we're, we're looking at, and that's what the controversy is about. We have a room culture that is being protected by a lot of different sources and a lot of different people, whether it's in the oil, gas, and coal business, who have a vested interest in making certain that their products are the ones that keep the light and the aircon going and the lifts running. I think we were looking at something today, Christopher, um, where um, it was a new Netflix TV show, um, and uh, David Attenborough was uh, introducing the premiere, and um, I think the quote was, 96% of all mammals on the face of the earth are us, um, or the domesticated animals we use for food, such as poultry, chicken, um, farming animals. And the, the kind of... the, the, the point I get from your book is that we are domesticated animals. Um, we are kept under control in rooms, um, often um, acting against our you know, more primal urges, and whilst keeping animals in that um, same state, um, and this simply can't continue to happen. And nature might find solutions for this with natural epidemics, disasters, that sort of thing. Um, Otherwise, uh, it does, just doesn't seem sustainable in rooms. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. There's a big uh, political issue here, is that once it becomes better known that l- the rooms that we've built are built on a premise about energy consumption and extraction, and that premise now has been uh, re-examined, and it's quite clear that it's destructive in ways that are measurable. Uh, mathematically, statistically, the science is pretty clear on this. Y- yes, there are going to be some uncertainties of how fast and when, but it's happening at a more rapid w- rate. The point being is, imagine any country where most of the rooms become uninhabitable. Think of India, for example. We've already had a short little dress rehearsal in the south of India with temperatures of 45 plus with drought, there's no water. You take a city, Chennai, which has a population of Philadelphia, and it has no water, what are you going to do with those people? Those people will have no choice but to be on the move. Just like we always moved in our history, we move for food and for water. We can exist without food up to a month. We can exist without water three days. So if villages and towns and cities start to run out of water, there's no way people can live in those rooms. They will be abandoned. So where will they go? We're not sure where they will go. But the UN estimates at current projections there could be 250 million to 1 billion climate refugees in the next 35 years. That's a lot of people. They're now in the world 72 million refugees. So instead of small bands of nomadic uh, 
um, groups, there'd be uh, mass migration in, in thousands, tens of thousands, looking for more um, suitable places. So we spoke about the hunter-gatherer uh, hunter life, and um, I was interested because we don't know too much about it, you know, pre-agricultural um, society. Um, how did these people get along? There were um, various bands of them. They would work best in groups of about 12 or 14, a hunting party. They would have this kind of uh, um, telepathy within the, the band of uh, hunters and they would, uh, they, their, their, their life was quite well um, organized. And uh, was there much friction between uh, groups in competition for new um, pasturing grounds and fertile places to forage and places to hunt, do we know or do we think? Um, what, was it um, a short, brutal life, you know, like Hobbes would say, or uh, did they live in, you know, peaceful harmony? Um, do we know much about that from your research? Uh, uh, my research indicates that we don't really know. Uh, I mean, there's no real historical record. There's no writings. Those people are long, long gone, along with their, their memories of the actual events that would have happened. So we, we, we can't say with any amount of certainty, you know, how uh, violent, how much conflict there was between bands and groups. We, we, we don't know that. Uh, what we can say is that we we know our species today, and our species today is basically uh, we are from that original 300,000-year-old group. In other words, each of us carries within us a lot of the DNA and a lot of the wiring that allowed us to prosper in ecologies all over the world. We're very adaptable from the, from the Arctic to the tropic. We've been able to find ways to adapt. So that shows a resilience in the species that a lot of species don't. You don't find uh, lions or chimpanzees having migrated and populated all different uh, zones on the planet. They don't do that. They stay local. So I think locality uh, is, is an important aspect, and it's going to, like the clip we sh you saw on Southeast Asia, if you look at it one way, what, you're, what you were watching is a clip of orchestrated violence and murder. That's what civilization was about. It's basically taking over other people's rooms, their wealth, their agriculture, their livestock, because it has value, and if you can basically slaughter them, you've got all of their rooms, all of their livestock, all of their crop at, at a profit of the soldiers that you've lost, deducted. Okay, a lot of it's this ground we've actually covered, I think. Uh, we don't know quite when rooms arrived um, in, the, in the form. Uh, we know when they arrived in the form they are now, but when they were fixed structures rather than uh, temporary shelters, we're not quite sure. Um, and the first rooms would be very uh, rudimentary. Uh, we ab abandoned our nomadic lifestyle once uh, agriculture became uh, uh, sustainable. And, and, uh, and who do rooms benefit? Oh, this was interesting. 
Um, so is, is this all part of a power hierarchy? Is, is uh, rooms, do rooms lead to towns, lead to cities, lead to countries, lead to um, uh, global businesses controlling the world? Is it all, is it all part of a path? I think a case can be made is that if you go to the pre-room history, we live, kinship was very important, but it was very limited. You had 15, 25 people who were your kin. If you want to scale to a large population, which you need for an army, you need to be able to scale from kin to family, from family to tribe. You need to have people feel the same about a large group of people that they felt for 15 or 25 people. That took a lot of energy and a lot of time to be able to do it. Now, the, the, it's evident from at least one scholar that probably for a thousand generations, maybe longer, our species living in those bands were quite egalitarian. And the reason they think that is from, uh, our, from anthropologists who spent time with modern hunter-gatherers like the San in South Africa, is that there was no clear alpha male. The alpha is the person who says, do this, go there, don't do that. And everyone lives in fear of that. Anyone who would try to do an alpha male thing, according to this research, for a thousand generations was basically ridiculed, made fun of, isolated, and if he was a true bully, he would be exiled or killed. In other words, alpha males or alpha females were not the standard. This, the alpha male got a real important chance with rooms by breaking that fi 15 to 25 people you can pretty well can control because you know everyone very well. You see everyone every day. You see their, their good sides, their bad side, their weaknesses, their strengths. And so no one is going to be thought to be any better or any more entitled or privileged than anyone else. That once we started living like this in rooms by the thousands and then by the tens and hundreds of thousands and millions, you have a lot of people at that point who are being managed. As James was saying, the book is about that domestication. We are managed throughout our day, throughout our life. You go to school to be taught how to be managed and how to be manageable. And if you're not manageable, then they put you on drugs so that you will somehow submit through that chemical intervention. Okay, from drugs. Oh. I wanted to go from drugs to sex there, but uh, it wouldn't let me. Okay, um, I thought I'd throw in a sex slide to liven up uh, the evening. And this guy was in the... Um, uh, one of the red tops, one of the uh, tabloid newspapers in London. And he's down in uh, Copangan, I think, or one of the islands uh, here. And his cave, it's not even a room, it's a cave, has become a, a, a an attraction of sorts for lonely planet-type backpackers to visit on their uh, tour of uh, Thailand. Um, and it's his little love nest inside there. 
and, uh, and it got me thinking about the um, chapter or chapters on uh, sex and rooms in rooms the book and the, the harems and the uh, and I was also thinking about the Epstein Epstein plane thing as well today when I uh, looked at this slide. So yeah, uh, rooms can be a manipula manipulation of uh, um, uh, gender um, through force. I, I, I mean, you can make a case that. Uh, living in rooms is probably the worst thing that ever happened to women. I yeah. think they had a lot more freedom, uh, a lot more independence than when everyone was living uh, in the open and traveling every two months uh, than, than they have in a room culture uh, where often they were confined as property in a room, which is kind of a weird thing. But going to, to James's uh, person down south, it's interesting and it's ironic that it would be people from the room's culture wanting yeah. to experience sex with someone from a non-room culture. Is that that is that is a, a freaky thing? We don't think of so, he's not like a homeless person. He is living the way someone would live for two hundred ninety thousand years, except he's having visitors from another already trans. Uh, uh, from another civilization. Another culture, certainly, yeah. So hip, I was thinking about countries being an extension of rooms um, and what tricks do national administrations, politicians, governments um, use to convince us that our rooms are worth living in, that our rooms are the best. Flags, uh, matching colored T-shirts, um, songs, perhaps, the old war. Um, this authoritarian approach to room maintenance um, is not only carried out by the father of a, a family of uh, five, but also by the leaders of nations. Is this a, um, a connection you um, looked at in any way? Yeah, I have, and I've thought about this as well, is that rooms are a perfect place for surveillance. And we self-surveil all the time. Every time you're putting in some Google search, you're allowing some surveillance software to register the fact that someone is registering a cure, a diagnosed for, for headache and fever in Bangkok, and that goes into some uh, database that will be collected to see if there's going to be an outbreak of flu in the city. But it happens for all kinds of other things as well. So yes, authoritarianism is the ultimate outcome of living in a confinement where your thoughts, your moves, uh, your desires, your wants, your depressions, your secrets are basically open for others to go through, whether it's government or large corporations. So that when you shut the door to your room, you're no longer alone in the way you would have been, say, 30 or 40 years ago. There are the invisible parts of a surveillance system, if you're on any way on the internet, that will be yeah. tracking you. Could you imagine, um, you know, if, if 15 or 20 years ago there was a knock on the door and you opened the door and it was some guy in a, in, a, in a brown suit and he asked you for your name, your um, date of birth, 
um, who your thousand friends are, what colour you like, what band you like, what TV show you like to watch, uh, where you went yesterday, where you're going to go next week, where you normally go on holiday, you would close the door in their face. You would, you would close that door. But now we voluntarily give this information away and it's all being held in uh, a room of some sorts and we've yet to know the consequence of this, uh, this data sharing which we've been involved in um, for too often and for a long time now. We don't know the consequences. Uh, but there are people who have left rooms and uh, it's increasingly difficult to do in this day and age, especially if we see the um, electronic and cyber put footprint that we leave, if we use um, the internet, if we use social media and uh, um, if we use smartphones, we're always going to leave a trail. Um, uh, but historically, some of our best thinkers have left behind society. We, we think of uh, Gautama Buddha. And, um, um, and I looked at Greece and, um, and Rome. And something you mentioned about the Romans, the, the, the people who left the society in the book, were they the outsiders? What, what was this yeah. group? I mean... The, the thing with uh, the original towns, they were actually quite dangerous places. They were walled cities, walled towns. And they were walled, you would think, to defend against people who might attack and, and steal the assets. But they were also walled cities to keep people inside. Because people lived in real squalor and they would run if, for example, there was an outbreak of a disease or there was a shortage of food. They would go to the hills. I mean, there's a huge overlap between the constructed rooms and the original migratory, mobile, hunter-gatherer type of people. The, not all the hunter-gatherer were just guys carrying spears and, and running around uh, uh, in, in Africa. Hunter-gatherers hunter were as diverse as any other population, but they didn't live in, they lived on the move. And, and they weren't accumulating wealth. They were not capitalist in any kind of way. So as a result, you have that kind of division. And, and you can't really recapture that because we are now locked in a room culture. There is really no place to run. Uh, James had mentioned uh, earlier about uh, the seafarers, the people who seasteading. They want to set up platforms in international water and to be independent of any country. Well, we've had nation states since 1648, and, and there's no way at the moment to see that the nation state is going to be junked for another system. And if there is another system, it will probably be coming from uh, the new technology, artificial intelligence, uh, other ways of governing, other ways of decision making, which may overtake, assuming that climate change doesn't get us first. Mm. And you can picture the, um, you know, the escapism here, the escapology of trying to get outside of a room and with the advent of uh, artificial intelligence or with virtual reality, um, you could be sitting in a small hut, you know, a shack even, not even what we'd call a modern room and ex immersing yourself in a artificial environment and feeling that you're escaping the room culture um, whereas you're 
you know, if, if one was to look from outside, objectively, you're completely within that room culture, and perhaps that is where the room culture is leading, um, to explore outside the room um, in our minds whilst remaining inside. Um, so I was wondering if there is hope <laughs> for um, nomadic workers. We looked at dig digital nomads, people that move around the world um, working online and the seasteading community. Again, it's like the guy who's um, uh, immersing himself in an artificial reality. Um, the seasteader, um, although it's a lovely idea in theory, they are in an enclosed space for much of the time on a body of water. And it's, you know, it's, all, it's a, like a prison to escape, you know, another prison. Um, Okay, so we're moving on to the natural emergency. Um, and I, I had this, we, we spoke on a podcast recently, and I was, you know, if, if the electricity died, if the power went out in Bangkok um, right now, if there was a national emergency of some sort, the people who would be um, the most affected would be those in the top penthouse floor of a condominium who rely on a chauffeur and the BTS, and these are the most affluent people, the richest. The uh, person from peasant stock in Isan would be, be able to survive. They'd be able to forage for food. They would be able to, you know, um, know where to find water, I'd imagine, and be able to, have, be able to travel. That'd be quite hardy. Um, but then we looked further into it, and there's this... Um, very rich uh, minority, you know, 0.01% who are buying up um, chunks of land in places like New Zealand, you know, to have these kind of fallout bunkers for when they anticipate, you know, everything will go um, to hell. Um, so how will... Um, how will we cope if that does happen? Or won't we? You, you can kind of see the outlines of people who are uh, super wealthy, you know, the billionaire class people. Uh, some of them are concerned and are seeking alternatives. The question is whether that makes any kind of rational sense because at some stage, the world will, will change to accommodate uh, what we need to do because evolution means that you evolve a different way out of necessity. Not because you want to, not because there's an alternative necessity. That's why we're here. We evolve because our ancestors, through a combination of necessity and accident, made the right seri series of predictions about what would happen next. And without that, we wouldn't be here. So we have that problem-solving ability, but getting back uh, to a, a point that James made about uh, the internet, social media, is another thing about rooms, it's the perfect incubator for addiction. Think how much time you spend checking a timeline. Think how many articles a day you're reading. And then try to remember one of those articles that was so important that you read on Wednesday a month ago. We have found ourselves addicted because the information for us seems so rich, so personalized, it gives us a high. And so that high is 
can be sustained by staying in your room and staying alone. You can see where that's going. We're very social creatures. I can remember Bangkok as Dominic Yen, you know, 30 years ago. It was perhaps a more sociable place. When you go out tonight, you take the public transportation, how many people will be looking at their cell phones as they're walking? How many of them will be on their cell phones when they're on the train? There's no longer the eye contact. There's no longer that connection that people had. And that's something to be watched and thought about. Yeah, I think our nomadic hunter forefathers would be getting dopamine hits every time they um, fire the arrow and it hits some wild game. We're getting dopamine hits every time we get a like on social media. That's the, uh, that's the state we're in. Right. Well, I think that's probably the most depressing programme we've had <laughs> this year. Um, but before I open it to the floor, what, 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 can you tell us what you get to at the end of your book? Or is that going to... Is it as the bad end, as it sounds? The end of the book is I look into the deep future. It's like everything else. We don't know what, how the future will unfold because there are just too many moving parts at this point. But we, we have to understand that we always think we live in a special time. We all think that we're special, that this is an emergency time. Actually, we live in a mediocre time. It's like any other time. We will get through what we have to get through. There will be things that will go wrong. There will be things that will be unpleasant. But ultimately, a 300,000-year-old species is not going to disappear in 50 years, 100 years, or 500 years. That gives us a lot of time to, to do a lot of things that need to be done to get us a different kind of relationship with this planet. Our relationship is twisted. It's twisted towards a certain kind of energy use. And as long as we don't see that, we continue to want that, those kinds of relationships. We have to move away from that. Where we move to next, I don't know. Peter. Hi, Chris. Hi, uh, Chris. Your, your best known for your novels about Bangkok, see me or side, and, uh, well, other, other novels about Thai culture and Cambodia and the region, Southeast Asia. You know, when I think about other authors who have, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, dare to go into this uh, area that you ventured into with this book, uh, basically prehistory and examining homo sapiens and what we are as a species. You think of somebody like Jared Diamond. I mean, he's what, an ornithologist? And uh, Edward Wilson, who is uh, an entomologist, right? I mean, these guys are scientists, right? So how did you go from being, uh, or how did you uh, uh, dare to go from being an author on on, uh, uh, basically mysteries and... uh, well, some other topics as well, to, to this very new uh, uh, region for you. Uh, uh, you know, what, what, how, do you, how do you feel you qualify to be an expert on rooms, I guess the question is? It's a good question. Uh, I, I came to this book, like I think I go to a lot of my books, uh, the Calvino books are, are, are mysteries, and... This book, Rooms, is about a very large mystery about how we came to be the way we are, how we believe 
what our relationships are like, how they've changed, and what's the fundamental level of who we really are, as opposed to what has happened to us with technology over the past 150 years. So I was curious about that. And we also live in a time where people understand that if you want an expert to write a book, it's going to be a very narrow book because expertise now has gone to a very micro, from a, from a macro level to a very micro level in almost every field. What we lack is someone to go through and synthesize from psychology, sociology, anthropology, archaeology, economics, uh, medieval uh, history, in order to, and science as well, in order to look at things in a more nuanced way, to try to fit together the pieces of all these individual pieces of expertise and to make them alive in a coherent picture. That's the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is give you my three years of research, of wide reading in many different areas, and bringing them together in what I think is a novel look at how we became the way we've become and what we're likely to become in the next few hundred years. Can you guys hear me? Okay, there we are. My name is Patrick Desmond, and I'm glad to be here. And, and I have to admit that I have not read your book. But I really, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm in love with history. And so the fact that you chronicle where human species has gone from hunter-gatherers to modern day, that's what I love. But I, but I have a feeling that there's an undercurrent of bias in, in what you uh, propose. So I'll, so I'll state, state at the beginning, you know, I'm an atheist top to bottom. So I believe human beings are called to no higher of uh, responsibility of this world than any other mammal or creature, okay? So when you uh, refer to things as artificial, I disagree. I don't think there's anything more artificial than a high-rise skyscraper than there is to a beaver's dam because we're all part of the natural world and human beings naturally construct those things. So getting back to this, I don't know why, and, and maybe you can correct me, it seems like you take uh, a negative perspective from the transition from what we were 10,000 years ago or before to where we are now. Um, and, I, and I point out a couple of things that um, you look at, we gradually relinquished our traditional mobility for life inside permanent rooms. It seems negative. It seems like relinquished could be changed. Um, you mentioned that we, our loss of mobility, um, our mode of mobility has changed. And, um, Again, you, you characterize it in a sense of loss and um, uh, what will make us mobile again, like there was something great about that in the past. Uh, and I point out the fact that I would think if we were back in prehistoric times or pre-10,000 years ago, if there was a storm, we would run for a room. We use the image of 
a Thai nomad or something like that in front of a cave, a cave is no less a room than this room here. So have I mischaracterized the undercurrent of what I call your bias uh, for something else? So I just sort of interested in your perspective on that. Okay. Uh, first of all, I have a bias. I think it's Danny Kahneman's account. I would have about 268, 680 biases. And you can't help but bring your own education, your own background uh, to the research that you do. Uh, that being said, what I'm looking at is not judgmentally. I don't think one is necessarily worse than the other, although you have archaeologists and you have others looking at uh, uh, the records to suggest, you know, sometimes a, a, a hunter-gatherer would, a, would have had things that would have been more interesting, maybe, but they would have also, they didn't have antibiotics, they didn't have doctors, they didn't have modern medicine. It was a pretty awful existence. You get cut, you're going to get infected and die very young. Childbirth was, was a misery. Uh, women died childbirth, a lot of infant mortality. So yeah, things were, were not rosy, and it's not painted as rosy in the book. Uh, what I'm looking at is just what happened during this period of time. We went into a period of agriculture. Agriculture happened long before the Rooms Revolution happened uh, because agriculture was just basically saying we can grow enough to feed our family. We don't have to move every two months. And so that would make sense. I mean, this is a logical thing that you would think, okay, well... And there are other people thinking the same thing. And so before you know it, you've got a hamlet with 20 families living there, farming the adjacent land. And that would have happened for thousands of years. These things did not happen overnight, 10 years, 100 years. Uh, they happened over a very long time. And they, they don't happen in isolation. They happen with a lot of other things happening uh, in terms of population growth, in terms of resource accessibility, in terms of technological changes. It doesn't have to be a big technological change. It could be a very small thing that cuts down on the amount of traveling time, uh, things like that, or uh, an ability to, to make a ship that uh, allows you a wider range of travel to take your goods and get your goods back. All these things are important factors and happened over that long period of time. But from about... 6,000 years, more and more people started to live in rooms. And really, if you look at the modern world, we're modern from about 1900, if you think about it. Before 1900, you didn't have high-rises, and for a very good reason. There was no elevator. <laughs> the elevator it was a very significant piece of technology. We don't think much about it. But before 1900, you did not have... Uh, mass-produced elevators. And so the, tech, the technological things that came from putting a lot of people together, you get a lot of people's minds uh, segregated by the fact that they're bright, they're good at mathematics, you school them, you use that knowledge to create a new generation of technology that then creates the next level of how you construct your rooms. The way this, this particular room is constructed is 
fairly recent. This is not uh, some template that you would have found 100 years ago. Yeah. I am Ozan from Jolalankon University. Uh, my question about the effect of the sound and uh, the color, you have mentioned about it. Uh, my question, uh, during the day, from the morning until the evening, that do you think that kind of exchangeable effect between the sound and the colors? And uh, also, do you think that can give an answer between our changeable of the lifestyle? Uh, that also. Yeah. I, I mean, there's no question that our perception of light is fundamentally changed because of artificial lights. We're able to, to use electricity, uh, to generate it, uh, to control it, and to create uh, a system that allows illumination of all different sorts. But the colors that we're seeing, the neurologists are telling us, are very much influenced by the kind of light, the quality of light, in which you are living in. And that's going to depend from room to room. The kind of light you need in a, in a, in a surgery, in a hospital, is going to be a different kind of light than you need in a jazz bar. Daniel? Hi, Chris. Um, Ling Kao, I'm from UNDP. Um, so my question is that, can you share your thought about human intentions with the form of rooms? Because I think there are different layers of human intentions that people come to seek for, uh, to serve others. People come here to seek for something, for sheltering, sense of security, sense of belonging. So there are different layers of uh, human intentions. And I think, um, for me, I feel like room is a platform to facilitate all human intentions together to put them into a system. So just one, I'm curious about your thought of um, what do you think about the function of a room um, for the different layers of human intentions? Excellent point. <clears throat> you know, most rooms are designed to communicate their intention or their expectation whether it's a dining room or a ballroom or a sitting room or a billiard room or an armory room, uh, a library, all of these will signal to people who enter them what they can expect to find and what kind of person identifies with building that room. Because if you look at your room, it's, it is a mirror of how you identify yourself. It identifies your intentions about what you value what you think is important, what you have selected. Of all of the thousands of millions of objects you could put in your room, you chose these things. When you go into a person's room, have a look. That's what they chose. The world is full of millions of cho choices, but they chose those things. They, they did it out of intention, and they expect you to approve and to like that. Just to, it's a bit low now. Like this? Um, just to, to suggest maybe a possibility for a more hopeful uh, conclusion. Um, 
Christopher, I take you to be saying that um, although, of course, this room culture has created a lot of problems and difficulties, and in some ways we probably don't feel entirely at home in these rooms, which explains these weird yearnings we seem to have, you know, to visit cavemen in their, uh, in their caves and have, you know, prehistoric sex with them. Um, the bottom line is we are all room people, and there is no going back. And the supposed caveman is anything but, right? He is a, he is a, um, a room person just as well, but in period costume, as it were. So um, I think, if I, if I understand you correctly, you would, short, would you not say that the problems or the, the solutions to our problems are going to come from the room culture as well? And that is not so much a matter of deciding whether we want to be in rooms or not, because that decision got made for us a long, long time ago. But what kinds of rooms we want to live in, right? We will stay a room culture. There's no way around that. But we can make those rooms take very different forms. They can be these energy-guzzling ecological disasters, or they can be something quite different, and they will still be rooms. And they can harness all those things that we have learned and that we can do because we are room people to solve these problems that have been side effects. Wouldn't you agree with that, too? Yeah. No, I, I have no disagreement with any of that. I think it, it's, it's true. We, we, we are universally a room culture whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Thailand or Canada or, or England, that is a shared premise. We disagree about a lot of things, but we don't disagree about a world that is constructed around people living in rooms and claiming those people as your citizens. That's the way the whole world is divided. Now, you will have people who are... Uh, perhaps quasi entertainers such as the uh, the the naked guy in uh, the south of Thailand uh, who's finding uh, a clever way to make a, a living but that that is a kind of a a local Walt Disney uh, program it's not real no one would suggest that there's anywhere left where you have uh, a culture uh, I mean there, there are a few exceptions there are, I think the 3200 gatherer groups still left on the planet, but they're very insignificant number, and they don't have much influence on 7.5 billion people that live in a room culture. How we get out of it, you're right. It will be from people who are working in rooms now who will find escape hatches or redesigns or refittings. Things will get patched between now and then. I don't see everything folding up and going to disaster, but I, I can see there'll be problems. But I think there always have been problems. We're always in a period of transit, transition. And we always think our period is rougher, more difficult, more perilous than those that passed before us. And I think that's probably not true. So you've uh, dodged the prehistoric sex question. Um, I, I've recently written a book myself, and I'm not going to advertise it here, but one of the things that I looked at was the Bangkok of the 1930s. And there was a very interesting aspect to it. It was a city of 700,000, 200,000 in Tombury. But at that point, there was no migration from the countryside to the city because there was no employment. So people who wanted to live and have a good standard of living stayed in the countryside. So a central issue in your rooms view of the world is migration so we have a situation in Europe now where people living in rooms sure. in Africa and they do have rooms, yes, they, they, do. they have houses, sure. are not happy 
Sure. So they want to go and live in the ruins of Europe. Uh, exactly. We have a similar situation along the Mexican-US border. Exactly. Our friends building a wall. So yeah. it, it would suggest that rooms are desirable, that, people, that, yeah. that well-organized civilizations, yeah. strong economies have rooms. Yeah. So they, they have rooms, but they also have resources as well. If you kind of look at what's happening in Central America, and it's similar to what's happening in places like Yemen, there are ecological reasons. There are droughts in these places. There are famines. These people don't have food. In other words, if you want to create conflict and migration, you create the circumstances that resources are scarce. They can't feed their children. Uh, and in, the, in that chaotic situation, you get gangs forming, mm. taking advantage of the most vulnerable people, bullying them around. And so you've got the worst of all worlds. You can't feed your family, and, they're being, and you and your family are being threatened. What are you going to do? You're going to run. And you're going to, you're going to run someplace where you've been told through Hollywood and all the propaganda you've ever read is the richest and the best place on the planet, and you have known people who know people who've done that, and they're so happy. And that happens in England. I mean, I was just there. I could, I, it's, England has changed since I was a student in the 70s. There's no question about it. This place has changed since uh, the 1980s as well. One of the figures I came across in writing the book was, I think, in uh, 1920, uh, only 30% of Americans lived in cities. By 2010, it was 80%. There's been a drastic change, and this is reflected worldwide. It's reflected in Bangkok, it's true in London, that people are moving into cities, and that cities in poorer countries are overwhelmed. That's why they're ringed with slums. Whether it's uh, Sao Paulo in Brazil, or uh, places in India like Mumbai, you're going to have massive slum dwellings, people will construct permanent structures, but they're not, from our point of view, very permanent. Questions? Um, yes, well, I'll ask another one. Um, I was, this idea of technological solutions and how, how we must evolve, because what we're seeing in the world, of course, is appalling at the moment. Look at the smog in Bangkok early, early this year. But I was in uh, Nairobi for the UN conference on the environment. And that was a really depressing uh, set of speeches. It went on and on and on. Uh, and at one point in the press conference, there was a, a professor from London who was asked, you know, is there anything that you can tell us that's cheerful, that, that will lift the mood? And he said, yes, there's one thing that's come out that's absolutely stunning. And that is China and its development of solar power and um, wind-driven turbines. And they've pushed all the money that they channeled into wrecking the world's steel industry. But they've done that with something that is a net good for mankind. And this, this really took root. A lot of people were very interested by it. And uh, there was one uh, UNEP person who said that it's conceivable that in Africa they could generate all their power requirements without burning any fossil fuels. This, yeah. is, this is an astonishing thing, if it's possible. So, I mean, your very depressing view of the world, that we're all going to hell, the glaciers are melting, and I'm not 
disputing it, yeah. but I think we should be very concerned about what's happening to our environment. But actually, going forward, we do have solutions. We, the, the message from the UN people was if we just do the right things yeah. and adopt the policies, enforce it, clean up plastic, blah, 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 we can, we can wing it. We can get through this problem. I mean, I agree. We know what the problems are. We know how to fix them. And I'm encouraged to hear that the Chinese are, are putting money uh, into alternative energy systems. But the reality is that most democracies are under the influence of big coal, gas, and oil sure. conglomerates, a big pharmacy. The, 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 the notion of citizens vote, people don't understand, is basically now an empty ritual. Whoever they're going to elect basically are going to be people who will make certain that the subsidies continue with the oil and coal and gas. I mean, listen to President Trump. He leaves no doubt in anyone's mind that that's his alternative. So, I mean, you can be highly optimistic and say, well, somehow China is going to overcome that, that kind of craziness. But, and given enough time, I think they probably could. The question is, is how much time do we have and you, the, the UN officials are saying maybe 12 years, 12, oh, 20. Yeah, they're, they're so, probably... it's, so it's a very short window of time to create, to, to, first of all, you have to have the science, then you've got to have the technology, and then you've got to be able to scale the technology, and you've got to be able to finance that scaling. And that all has to be done in this short period of time. I hope it can be done, but it's got the drag of the existing system trying to pull it down time-wise, because it's in its advantages. I mean, uh, ExxonMobil and, and the others have $2 trillion of oil reserves that they don't want to lose, and they're fighting for that. But, but there are other forces in action, and, and there are, there's huge public support for, for reforming this, these sorts of abuses. So uh, you know, people can vote and buy electric cars. Yeah. The Chinese happen to build more power stations, coal-fired power stations, than anybody on Earth. Sure. But they're moving away from it. Sure. And, you know, the banks, so the banks in Singapore uh, yeah. refusing to fund any more coal-powered right. power stations. Th these are all little bricks in the wall. I mean, the message was everybody should do something. A little right. bit helps. Plastic bags, whatever. But your um, grim... Outlook. It's not. It's not grim. I'm just asking: Is there enough time for the technology? I don't know These the answer. These are all the right questions. Yeah. yeah. I don't. I don't know. But my concern would be as we move to what what I would call an allocation yeah. economy, which is sort of post-socialism, because people don't have jobs; they've got to be given money to live, uh, you know, income, um, and they're being monitored constantly. All these things are going on. What is, is not the biggest threat pointlessness that people suddenly have no reason to live? They don't have a job, they're bored, uh, they live online, they live in their boxes. Th this is a very corrosive... Um, it's it's Adolis Huxley uh, kind yeah. of uh, world, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, where, where basically uh, you have SOMA and it makes the, the people satisfied. It's enough. you know. Uh, but as I say, I'm, I'm not optimistic or pessimistic. I just don't know enough about what's in line and how that's going to scale during that period of time. I'm, I'm rooting for the team that says, let's do it and get it done. And it's good to know that th these things are happening. The question is, is when enough of them will accumulate to make a real shift? 
because the transition from the way we use these rooms and it will be a huge transition if oil gas uh, go uh, too quickly because the new technology may not be able to take up all of that capacity. It, so there may be a, a kind of a rationing. It's a little bit, it's like in England in the early 70s when I was a student there. There were still people talking about the rationing after the war of sugar and other things. People learn to ration things in an emergency situation. The problem with climate change is it doesn't seem to be like an emergency for most people. Yeah. Well, I mean, the arguments on energy are basically all economic, that if you, if you drive down the cost of the alternatives, then coal, which is actually hard to extract, becomes more and more unviable. This is something Trump doesn't realize. So there's, yeah. there are strong arguments in that direction um, for a more, more optimistic outlook. Right, are there any more questions? I don't want to hog the floor. Yes? A couple of quick practical ones. Uh, you uh, it should be on Amazon. Okay, I looked on Kindle today and I couldn't find it, but I'm not necessarily okay. confident to Okay. It. If it's on an Amazon, it should be on Amazon, uh, then a Kobo, K-O-B-O. Kobo? Yeah, Kobo is a good one. And I look forward to reading it, but more importantly, what's going on with Calvino? <laughs> <laughs> He's resting. Oh, we don't want to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> but not, but not gone. Not, I, w I would not say he's gone. No. Uh, That's very good to hear. Yeah. He's, he's uh, look, we've got books uh, up front. If any of you uh, would like to to buy a copy of one of my books or one of James's books, please do so, and I'd be happy to sign them. Yeah. So they're at the back. They're at bargain prices. So I'd like to thank uh, Chris and James Newman. Uh, for rather a cerebral evening, actually. I don't think the FCCT is up to speed on this. Uh, a few corrections. You mentioned that chimpanzees don't cooperate, but ants and lots of insects do. So there's, the animal world does actually have some very good examples. And you said that most people in Bangkok were born in rooms, but in fact, most people are born in taxis on their way to hospital. <laughs> And this, this is the only city in the world where all the police are trained as midwives and they all carry rubber gloves. Not many people know that. They get anyway, lots of practice. <laughs> it's to learn things like that that you come to the FCCT. So thank you both very much. Very interesting evening. Thank you.
icons from the icons Icons should be icons, shoot the icons from the icons Icons should be icons, shoot the icons from the icons Icons should be icons, shoot the icons from the icons Icons should be icons, shoot the icons, fuck the icons Icons should be icons, shoot the icons, fuck the icons